0: in 2026 or 2027, it's going to be catastrophic. China cannot go to big data AI without access to advanced semiconductors. We cannot be in the big data phase without high bandwidth connectivity. Basically, it's a disgrace that the US is not the leader in 5G. And this migration to 2 nanometers is critical for supercomputing for AI. China has to finesse it in such a way that they can use Taiwan as a lever but not destroy the supply chains and of course they can't invade. Also, by the way, Morris said that the fab in Arizona the wafer cost would be 50 percent higher than in Taiwan. We don't fully agree with that. We think it's more like 30 percent.
1: From Orion X in association with Inside HPC. This is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Great to be with you again.
2: Really excited to be here, Doug. We have a special guest.
1: We have a special guest. This is an episode of our podcast I've looked forward to for some time. We're today with Handel Jones. He is the founder and CEO of the consulting firm International Business Strategies, which is based in California, has been in business for 30 years, provides strategic consulting for global companies in the electronics industry. And Handel is also an author, a thinker, And a writer. He has come out with a book entitled When AI Rules the World China, the US, and the Race to Control a Smart Planet. Handel, welcome. Thank you. If you would, I think there are two primary themes of your book. If you could share your overall thesis, please.
0: So, artificial intelligence is a dramatic new capability that's going to become really very important in the next 20 or 30 years. When we look at society, we have changed dramatically by what we call machine power. Machine power is electricity. Machine power is a whole range of things that has given us modern society. And that has occurred over a period of 200, 240 years, roughly. Artificial intelligence, though, is what we call enhancements in brain power. We're going to have the same leverage to the human brain with AI that we've had with machines over the past few hundred years and this is going to change society dramatically because work patterns are going to change education patterns will change the health system will change so there are there is significant technology in all of this and the technology is generally predictable but the impact on society though is really not that predictable and we have to prepare for it we have to train People to adopt AI. And again, as I said, it's going to change the work environment significantly. Factories will be highly automated. We do expect autonomous driving and delivery of goods maybe in the middle 2030s, 2035. And that, of course, will change the whole issue in terms of drivers and so on. So we're going to have a whole range of jobs that will be obsoleted. And of course, to compensate for that, we have to have new jobs. So when we look at the trajectory of AI, we see brilliance in the U.S. We see really innovative stuff at at Google Alphabet, at Amazon, Microsoft, Volunteer, many companies. But when we also look at China, we see trajectories in China that are moving at a much faster rate than we have in the U.S. And we've looked into that. Why is that happening? Is it because they're starting with better technology? No. Do they have better technology in some areas? Yes, definitely. But a key part of it is the role of government support. And government support in China is in two areas. One is in terms of supporting development of technology, building companies. That's the supply side. And that's the side that we generally see and we say, okay, it's unfair trade practices, etc. But that's the side where there's a lot of focus going on. But the other side of China is they create markets. And that is actually pretty dramatic. You know, the normal approach is the Hayek principle. Corporations develop markets or markets emerge and they drive corporations. Well, if it's pure cooperation versus cooperation, that works. But if it's government plus cooperation against corporations, and in some cases in the U.S., it's corporations minus government, not plus government, it doesn't work. And in many cases in China, we see a lot of waste, but in many cases, we see a lot of progress. So when I saw the progress in China, and I've been going to China fairly regularly before COVID, and when I saw the progress in the US, I became very concerned. And I thought, we need to understand, number one, the implications of AI. And there are a number of books on AI and so on. But again, to understand the implications of AI as AI. And then the other part of it is the activities in China and what it could mean for the US, not in 2023, not in 2024, but maybe in 2030 and 2040. And the implications are pretty dramatic. So, of course, the book covers it in detail, but I can also cover some of the key points today.
1: Okay, that's fascinating. So you're kind of saying it's an asymmetrical, if you will, contest here because of the weight of the Chinese government in support of what Chinese companies are doing in AI. So it's almost a two against one, if you will, kind of a contest.
0: So AI requires very high computing power.
1: And, you know, what NVIDIA is doing is incredible,
0: really, really good. And some of the stuff at Intel, the new stuff looks good. Some of the stuff at AMD is really, really good. Qualcomm is doing some really good stuff. High Silicon was doing some really good stuff, but they got blocked by the US government. There are other companies in China doing, basically doing the processing and so on. Some of them are now being blocked. The other part is connectivity. You need high bandwidth connectivity. And China is significantly ahead of the US in installation of 5G. 5G hasn't come up as fast as expected in China, because of limitations on Huawei. China is also developing 6G. And how much are they spending on 6G? Maybe in the range of uh, $10 billion a year. And what are we doing in the US in 5G? Well, some really good 5G technology for smartphones, but infrastructure very weak. In the US, pretty much nothing in 6G. And I just read today that Ericsson is concerned about the slowing demand for 5G in the US, moving slowly. But it's Ericsson, Nokia, and their R&D levels are much, much lower, much lower than order of magnitude or more than what we see in China. So again, 6G, basically the high bandwidth connectivity, China already has quantum communication, not quantum computing, but quantum communication in use. So this is one specific area where we see foundation for AI being built much more aggressively in China. And in fact, very low level of activities in the U.S. and also low level of understanding of why not having high bandwidth connectivity is important.
2: This is a great setup for a whole lot of discussions. One of the big differences in the two approaches to the market, of course, is The U.S. tends to be more market-driven, not immune from government interactions and acceleration, but substantially market-driven, and China appears to be more substantially government-driven. And if so, then maybe it's okay that there is no demand for 5G or there is little demand because the market doesn't see particular use for it, and we should not push a technology that doesn't have any more use than it already is adopted by the market.
0: Well, I agree that the US is market driven and that can work in many situations. However, though, if there's a need for large capital investments, the system doesn't work. So if you look at manufacturing in the US right now for semiconductors, Intel has some facilities, but TSMC is the clear global leader. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, Micron, for example, in memory, Their fabs right now are in Singapore, in Taiwan, and fab in Japan. They are planning to put a fab in New York, but it's going to be a small percentage of the total. So if you look at capital-intensive industries, if capital in the US is willing to be placed into capital-intensive industries, it works. But if that's not the case, it doesn't work. So I'll give you an example. China right now is the leader in battery technology. CATL is something like the 30 or 35% of the battery sales for EVs. I think, my opinion, EVs are the future. But the mm-hmm. US has no significant battery company. And not only has China government supported the establishing of battery capacity in China, they've also supported the establishing of access the materials, lithium, the cobalt, the nickel, whatever you need. So they're very proactive in supporting the supply of capital for industries that will be important in the future. So right now, they were stimulating the demand for EVs. And if you look at patterns in China, in many cases, you build up high volume in local markets and then you address global markets. And if you look at the smartphone business, basically, you've got Apple, you've got Samsung, and then is Chinese, Oppo, Vivo, Xiaomi, and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Almost nobody else is significant. We see the same thing in displays. Originally, display technology was in Japan, then basically it went to Taiwan and also South Korea. But right now, the largest capacity in output is from China. And then you also can look at uh, LEDs, pretty much exclusively from China. If you look at solar cells, pretty much exclusively from China. Now, do you need high bandwidth? That's a red flag for a bull. We have to have high bandwidth connectivity. We cannot be in the big data phase without high bandwidth connectivity. Basically, it's a disgrace that the U.S. is not the leader in 5G. Basically, in the past, the US was a leader in high bandwidth connectivity. But right now, bandwidth connectivity is terrible. And it's really going to hurt the next generation of capabilities in AI. Because if you don't have high bandwidth connectivity, you basically will not be able to effectively use AI in many
2: applications. Regarding high bandwidth, I don't know if it is valid to equate 5G with high bandwidth. You can get quite a lot of high bandwidth without 5G, just through traditional Wi-Fi, and use 5G where it is necessary and where it is possible to use. It requires line of sight. It has some restrictions that may make it not quite generally usable. And then as it relates to sort of all the industries where Asia has been traditionally and currently very strong, that kind of goes back to risk management. The U.S. championed the idea of free trade and international, if not fully global trade, because the prevailing wisdom was that that was the proper thing to do for the U.S. as well as for the globe. So what changed? What happened where we suddenly said, oh, you know, all that supply chain out there, uh, that's not good anymore. Was there a pivotal event that caused it, or has it been sort of building to the crescendo we're seeing now?
0: Interesting. So staying with a high-bandwidth Wi-Fi is only as good as if you get connectivity to Wi-Fi. So options can be fiber and position of U.S. in fiber is moving, but moving very slowly. But where I live, I have major problems with bandwidth. I mean, I cannot get high-definition television because I don't have high bandwidth. So Wi-Fi is a local distribution And Wi-Fi 6E is coming in, Wi-Fi 7 is coming in, but you need the high bandwidth content to the source of Wi-Fi distribution. The other question that you have is really an interesting question because open trade is what I think is the right way to go. And in many cases, U.S. has encouraged open trade. And, you know, they put some restrictions on automobile companies, Japanese automobile companies. There have been restrictions here and there. But generally, U.S. actually has been a champion for that. And I think it has actually helped the U.S. to a great extent. However, though, today we have record trade imbalance with China. It's huge. And you say, well, why? Why doesn't China buy from us? we have nothing to sell them. We can sell them oil, but we have no manufacturing here. And yeah, I mean, I think GM and Ford have done very well with joint ventures in China, but exports of cars into China has not been that effective because they really are not geared towards the local markets. So I think the US for, for a while when Europe was maybe the competitor, and there was access to raw materials from multiple sources and so on. I think the system worked very well, but you mentioned how has it been broken? Well, it has been broken by China,
2: mm-hmm. and it's
0: been broken by China by U.S. outsourcing manufacturing to China. I mean, Apple you know, is still doing most of its manufacturing in China. They're doing some in Vietnam. They're doing some in India. I think India is going to be a good source for manufacturing for the Indian market. But manufacturing in India, India is superb in software, absolutely superb. And we think India can be a global leader in AI, but I put a small factory up in India. And frankly, logistics and supply chain capabilities in India will take many years to develop.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: So I think it's a very good question. And again, how do we reverse it? Will the CHIPS Act do it? What do we need to do in the US To reverse it, so as you probably just saw, Stellantis just moved Jeep manufacturing out of Illinois to Mexico, and also BMW have now moved some of their manufacturing of EVs to Mexico. So in some ways, it seems we're going the opposite direction. But the difference that I see between US and China is people in Washington do not understand or refuse to understand the basic problems with the U.S. and taking the appropriate actions to fix those problems. In China, if you look at the leaders, they're very well trained. They've run businesses. I think the, the talk that uh, Mr. Lu or Dr. Lu gave at Davos is really interesting, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Maybe going back to the previous generations where China was open, is it really open? You know, is it? we're back to the Hu Jintao period again, because I was I went to China quite a bit during that time. And uh, yeah, it was very open. Also, they took technology very freely. But uh, again, you know, is it a real opening up? But I'll tell you, though, when you talk about China, China has a very high level of entrepreneurship. Basically, the SOEs are quite inefficient. The government has wasted a lot of money. But the entrepreneurs in China... A superb, Hmm. and you start basically. You see them, you know, in these small markets. They all sell the same thing, and basically, it's a gift of the gap in price negotiation. That's the basic culture. But the education system is becoming quite good. They have many, of course, many top uh, people in industry who were trained in the U.S. and also in other countries. But their top leadership is actually very astute, very smart, and very battle trained. And with Tennessee, we have in Washington is we choose political affiliation, uh, maybe five or six years of university expertise writing papers as the basis for running a big department where there's no expertise in understanding the global issues. What does it take to win? And also, I think Washington tends to have this at least anti-Silicon Valley sentiment in terms of Google, you know, controlling people and meta, etc., so here we have, in many cases, minus government as opposed to plus government. It's changing some, I think, and some areas. I think the CHIPS Act is good. I think some of the uh, work in terms of bringing back supply chains to the U.S. is good. But there's a lot of work we have to do. And again, I think we have to be very honest about exactly where we're at and trying to slow down China. is actually having an impact, at least in the short term. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting to watch, read about the TSMC experience of building fabs in Arizona in the U.S. because they're having a very difficult time putting together the skills needed in chip manufacturing. It's something we've outsourced for decades and we don't have it. So they're they're creating all sorts of incentives for TSMC employees in Taiwan to relocate to the U.S. <laughs> and it's it, it really points up some of these issues that you're talking about. I'm interested, Handel, though, in your thoughts on just at a very tactical level, the administration's restrictions on certain semiconductor exports to China. And if you think that's an effective response or really just a short-term kind of a stopgap thing. And second part of that question would be, what do you have thoughts on what China might do in response?
0: So we spend a lot of time on these regulations and the BIS resolution or regulation of October 7th, Is not having a big impact on China in 2023, and probably will not have a big impact in 2024. However, though, in 2026 or 2027, it's going to be catastrophic. China cannot go to big data AI without access to advanced semiconductors. And what do we define as advanced semiconductors? Well, basically, it's two nanometers, the H100 of NVIDIA, for example. China has to have access to advanced semiconductors. So it's being glossed over right now because, I said, China can get away. It doesn't need the advanced semiconductors in 2023. So the number one problem in China right now is controlling COVID. And number two will be basically stimulate the economy. 3% is really bad. And they said 5.5% at the beginning of last year. So they have to have like 55 or 6% growth this year. And then after that, we think that China will start basically taking some actions against the US, maybe towards the end of 2023, beginning of 2024. But this BIS one, it limits, uh, NAND product manufacturing in China for 128 layers and above. It limits the DRAM 18 nanometers, 17 nanometers, 80 nanometers, our pitch. Those are going to basically close down Yangtze Memory and CXMT, probably potentially the Samsung facility in Xi'an, the SK Hynix facilities in um, Wuxian also in Dalian. But the other one is basically lack of access to 2 nanometer, or they say gate all around, which in the case of Samsung is 3 nanometers and TSMC 2 nanometers. So Samsung is starting 3 nanometers this year. TSMC 2 nanometers is 2025. Apple is the first customer. Qualcomm, probably second customer. Then you've got AMD and NVIDIA. And this migration to 2 nanometers is critical for supercomputing, for AI. And of course, the uh, DRAM DDR5, for example, which uses EUV, China cannot have the EUV, at least a Samsung, but not Micron. That again is critical for supercomputing and AI. So China cannot have growth of economy going forward, especially the digitalization of the economy, and basically the adoption of AI in a whole range of applications without access to advanced semiconductors. And of course, also by extension, then having supercomputer capabilities. And supercomputer capabilities, you know, maybe you define it as what NVIDIA does and what Cray does and so on. But actually the smartphone, because the smartphone will have supercomputer capabilities in 2028, 2030, compared to what you have in the big systems today. Yeah, so I think it's going to be catastrophic, and China will strike back. Uh, The first approach is basically to do an olive branch. You know, we're going to be open, let's get industry support. But Washington, especially some of the um, right-wing Republicans, are very, very anti-China. And basically, they're planning on increasing restrictions. So we have a business environment which operates at one level, and then we have the political level which operates at another level. And how the conflict at the political level will unfold is really unclear, but China will fight. And of course, Taiwan is in the middle. Taiwan cannot be destroyed. The concept that there'll be a preemptive strike on TSMC, that is ludicrous. Basically, China... The whole world needs TSMC. And if TSMC is destroyed, China, again, will not be able to have its advanced technology. So China has to finesse it in such a way that they can use Taiwan as a lever, but not destroy the supply chains. And of course, they can't invade Taiwan. So how it's going to work out is an interesting issue. And it's really above my IQ level. Maybe there are more facts, more data, but frankly, it's a big issue in the industry. It's a huge issue, and people are talking about it all the time.
1: How significant is it that TSMC is building fabs for advanced chips in the US and Japan? I mean, this could kind of diffuse Taiwan on the supply chain side, as far as TSMC goes, possibly, over the longer term, and that would have major implications for Taiwan National security and the scale of our involvement and so forth and so on, I I would assume.
0: Well, the fab in in Japan is 28 nanometers and it's really mainly for Sony. They might do maybe around um, 40,000 wafers a month. They might do 16 for so on, but it's going to be about 40,000 wafers a month. And very expensive, by the way, 5 billion. If you look at the 28 nanometer capacity globally, right now it's about 300,000 wafers a month. And we see another 300,000 wafers a month being added. Actually, more than 200,000 in China. In terms of the fab in Arizona, you know, it's it's good. However, it's going to be 4 nanometers and 3 nanometers. And in Taiwan, TSMC runs its 5 nanometers, 4 nanometers, 3 nanometers in the same two fabs. And capacity is about 150,000 wafers a month. 150,000 wafers a month. And so they're going to be adding 40,000 wafers a month. In two nanometers, which TSMC is bringing up, and that's now being, you know, they've assured the Taiwan government that will only be in Taiwan. Uh, Apple will use it in 2025 when the fab in arizona comes up. That's going to be another 150,000 wafers a month. So in 5, 4, 3, 2, in 2026 or 2027, TSMC will have 300,000 wafers a month and Arizona's 40. Okay. But it really doesn't move the needle much. Yeah, it's yeah. a good, good first step, a good gesture. Also, by the way, Morris said that the fab in Arizona, the wafer cost would be 50% higher than yes. in Taiwan. We don't fully agree with that. We think it's more like 30%. Mm-hmm. And what's the big difference? The big difference is utilization of equipment because equipment is about 65% of wafer cost. So depreciation, 65% of wafer cost. So if the equipment throughput is lower, then you'll have higher wafer cost. But it's going to be about 30% higher, in our opinion. Labor is is not important. But the equipment throughput and probe yield, those are the critical factors.
2: One question we haven't talked about is the demographics challenges that China is facing. How do you see them addressing it? And how does that change the dynamics of all of these?
0: It's a pretty significant problem. In two or three respects. One is that when we look at the number of graduates in China, about 10.8 million last year, 50% female. And what they don't want to do, you know, their parents, a single child, the parents have sacrificed a lot. What they don't want to do is stop and have a child. And before, you know, and there are, there are more males in China than females, but basically, if the, if the male is not educated, if they can't provide, support in terms of an apartment and so on there's less interest by many women in getting married and the career opportunities are opening up in china so that's one set of dynamics the other one is that the number of people required to be employed in factories is going to drop 100 million or more and basically if you go to autonomous driving you won't need drivers and of course recently china Hired a lot of people, you know, maybe 100 million people to do testing of COVID. All that has stopped. So China is going to have a huge employment problem over the next few years. The fact that population is declining is a problem because they don't have a big pension system. So you don't have a huge pension penalty. And of course, COVID has helped a little bit in that arena. But I think the the structure of population is changing. You know, the education system right now in China is intense. If when you're 16 years old, you're in the top 10%, you can go to school six and a half days a week. And basically the days can be 12 hours and you do nothing but but schooling. The PLA is complaining, you know, because they come out of school not physically strong and they do testing all the time. And the the subjects are maths, physics, chemistry, history, Mandarin, and some political issue. Now they've added PE. But what you're going to have is very highly educated and also kids that have been used to exams and constant pressure to perform. The way you have athletes, you know, basically you know, athletes are picked out when they're five years old, six years old, you know, given special treatment and, you know, a lot fail and the ones that are successful, but they're taking the same approach to, to, to education. So you're going to have this highly educated force, 10 million a year, probably about 40% STEM graduates. They need jobs and they, yeah, they do, they do have some responsibility to their parents, but in many cases, the parents are in rural areas, they're in urban areas. So there's going to be some significant turmoil in terms of the um, demographics in China over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And of course, at the same time, AI is coming in, virtual reality is coming in. You know, basically, will, will kids just drop out and play games, go into a virtual reality world? Yeah. So yeah, they, they've, got, they've got huge problems. The thing about China, though, as I said, is many of these problems are recognized they have major failures in implementation, you know, like COVID, Uh, they fix it. But yeah, it's going to be a very interesting um, situation in terms of how they manage the change in population. But the other thing that I think is more important is now they're going to have highly educated, you know, 10 million a year, you know, in in 20 years, that's 200 million.
2: Mm, Maybe they can be just a larger Singapore. But (laughs) one question I had for you is that, you know, you look at all of what is going on with all the technologies, with AI, all these changes, the demographics, the pandemic, the climate change, it almost feels like we are at a pivotal point in history again. Now, we might think that's the case every three years, but it certainly feels right that almost like we need a new model, as we might need a new model in the West, it seems like they too need a new model. What is your perspective on that? Do we collectively need a new model for the globe, or are we just going to muddle through and hopefully figure it out how big a problem is that by itself
0: i think yes you brought up a very interesting point you're very astute by the way yeah i think the us has major major problems and we've we've hit the uh, debt ceiling of maybe 31 trillion whatever it is and what worked in the us in the past many much of that has been abandoned and the education system in my opinion in the us is now becoming a disaster so i think the us needs to do a reset I don't see the leadership in the US or the recognition that we need to do that. So I'm very concerned. Europe is also having its set of problems. I come from the UK. UK is an absolute disaster. Absolute disaster. We do see India coming up. We do see, frankly, the software capabilities in India, you know, high IT and so on. Excellent. Yeah, but China China does need to go through another major, major transition. And they've gone through a couple already, you know, from the agriculture to the urban, to hire some high technology. But AI will force another major change, and that's the reason I wrote the book. Yeah. I think we're going to have to have and exactly how, and each country is going to be different. I think how it works in the U.S. does not work in China. And China, what works in China doesn't work in the U.S. You know, when I first went to China, somebody said to me, well, Chinese people are very ruthless. they so like crabs in a basket. They climb on top of each other. And they are very ruthless. I mean, they are basically very aggressive. And mm-hmm. they basically are, as I mentioned earlier, very entrepreneurial. And you can have mass chaos in a short time if you don't have close control. And you saw some of that fairly recently with the resistance against restrictions of COVID. But that can now with with internet and so on that can spread very rapidly. So they they have major major challenges, major problems. They got to get the um, GDP growth up. They got to increase employment. They can't increase exports because that's determined by the economies of the U.S., Europe, and so on. So they have to increase internal consumption, and that's what you're going to see in the next few months. But yeah, you're a very astute, a very astute point. Maybe if you have some ideas or in that arena, you should. Um,
1: a book on them. <laughs> I wanted to ask you too. The the wild card in all this, if if it was just economic competition and technological competition, that would be one thing. But the wild card is the military aspect and China's increasing apparently expansionist ambitions, with Taiwan, of course, being the prize. And. I read a I thought a very interesting observation, I think in the Wall Street Journal, that if it came to a war with Taiwan and we did not come to, you know, did not side with Taiwan strongly enough, it's not just Taiwan. That would then lead to a realignment of alliances. If we weren't seen as a reliable, strong ally, then other countries would say, We've got to we've got to change who we're aligned with. So that's the ultimate picture here. So to me, this whole issue really gets down to the, the military part. That's where the stakes are really at the highest.
0: I completely agree. A lot, quite a bit of my background is military. I basically was at Rockwell, and my part is now within Boeing. But that's another part for writing the book. I'm a little bit behind in terms of all the most modern stuff. But when you look at the technology of semiconductors used in military Today in the U.S., 28 nanometers is quite common. In the past, actually, I provided support for military. We had government inspectors coming in and so on with Class B. I was not directly involved in Class S, but we were one and a half generations behind commercial. Commercial at the time was IBM, DEC, and so on. Today, we're four generations behind. If you look at Apple, China is different, though. China is basically doing seven nanometers and if you look at the drone technology, it is really good. And the, the thing about drones is that th- but many areas of technology, you need high-volume manufacturing. And so what they're doing is they're ha- bo- doing high-volume manufacturing of drones for delivery of goods. And, of course, so the goods can sometimes be heavy, sometimes be fast, and so on. So drones is one area where they really are moving very rapidly. They've landed on the other side of the moon. They're putting up a space station. Basically, they got this visit to Mars. And the hypersonic stuff they're doing is really pretty good. Yeah, I think the military, militaries were the major reasons for writing the book because I think the U.S., they spend a lot of money or we spend a lot of money, but it's on, it's on many of the wrong things. And I don't want to go into it right now in detail, but I know, but there's huge waste, but we're not focused on technology. You know, I remember LSI logic, Wolf Mm -hmm. Corrigan, you know, basically they were state of the art. I mean, the current concerns were competing with Fujitsu and so on. And of course, that went into the stuff at Lockheed. Lockheed funded them. But China is moving ahead of U.S. in many areas of military. What's saving the U.S. is Israel. Israel is doing some really good stuff. You know, China is doing a lot of work in 3D facial recognition. And 3D facial recognition basically is used to go to the bank, to get on trains, to go to the hospitals and so on. But it's image recognition. And image recognition is what you need in military. And again, in my previous past, I long time ago, I was involved in some of the stuff. But China has moved very, very fast ahead of in image recognition, which, as I said, is going to be used widely Israel used widely in many areas of the military. Israel is the best in the world in image recognition. So again, we're asleep or focused on the wrong things. And that's one of the reasons I said I wrote the book, to have the U.S. understand that the present approach to military spending, yeah, if you're competing with Russia, maybe it's okay. If you're competing with France, maybe it's okay, but not when you're competing with China. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Speaking of military, I have to ask this question, and that's information warfare. and. The idea that in the old days, information warfare was basically espionage and trying to figure out what the other guy is planning, but now it is head games and misinformation and providing the wrong coordinates to their right equipment. How do you see that aspect of military evolving?
0: That's another very good point. Based on, again, we don't know the secrets of the secrets, I think right now the U.S. is actually in relatively good shape, but we do see China focusing heavily on this. They do have quantum communication, and quantum communication you cannot jam. They're basically basically have, have, have developing or putting a lot of money into lasers to, to destroy satellites. But they've also come out with now communication systems that will basically lock a whole range of communication. So again, the big investment in 5G and now the investment in 6G. This is another area where we do see again China being behind, but putting big effort, putting big efforts into it and making big efforts. But again, these activities will need the most advanced semiconductors. So the Achilles' heel of China right now is they've got to get those semiconductors. So without them, basically, there's no real threat. But can China, will China allow the US to have advanced supercomputers and semiconductors where they will not have them? I think the answer is no. And again, this is contentious. This is my opinion. But we will know though in three or four years this is not a decade decision. Or maybe we'll even start knowing the end of this year or next year. But yeah, that's another good point. We're in, we're in a new world. And again, you know, if you have these communication capabilities and you send in a swarm of drones and drones that can go around corners and so on, I mean, you can destroy carriers. You can destroy basically much of what we position
1: right now as a major part of our military capability. By the way... What would China's retaliation be? We certainly have heard discussion about restricting their exports of rare earth minerals. but is that would that be the main retaliation?
0: You know the, the speech in Davos was surprised us a little bit, frankly, because this is now showing the olive branch, but the trade imbalance is huge. I mean a record trade imbalance so they can put tariffs on so on many of those goods. They, got, they might not block them. they could put tariffs on those goods. They could limit imports of some products into China based on um, safety issues. They can, again, I said limit exports in terms of doing additional testing and so on. A lot of small things they can do They can be a nuisance in the near term. Uh, but when you do that, though, you have to signal that that's the beginning of having a big stick. And so I think the, the first approach they're going to do, I think there were some really some patent issues they can also exploit. But I think trade is going to be one where the US is highly vulnerable. You can't move trade. You can't move things like manufacturing smartphones out of China that effective. You're going to put a factory up in India, but then you need the lenses from China. You need a whole bunch of other things from China. So yeah, I think it's going to be trade restrictions as, or some trade tariffs could be the first step. But there was something will happen with Taiwan. I mean, Xi Jinping has said you know, he's going to do something about Taiwan. He's going to be re-elected in 2027. If he doesn't do Taiwan, chances of being reelected in 2027 is low. I think he's going to, certainly going to be, try to be re-elected in 2027. So we have t- one time window. A number of my friends are saying, well, watch out for 2024 because this is an election year in the US. But I think in 2024, U.S. will actually become very much more anti-China because anti-China gets you votes. You know, fixing streets of San Francisco doesn't get you votes, but beating up on China gets you votes. But 2027 clearly is going to be a time window and you can't wait till 2027. You have to do something 2025 or 2026. So it's going to be fairly imminent in terms of where we have basically the pushback from China and where the U.S. trade limits on semiconductors will start to hurt China. So those those two paths will probably meet in 2025. And I think by then, between now and then, or oh, 2025, I think you're going to start seeing some significant trade war emerging. Wonderful.
1: Fascinating discussion. Really good. Yes. Okay. So we've been with Handel Jones, he's the founder and CEO of International Business Strategies Consulting Company, and he's also the author of When AI Rules the World. Handel, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care.
1: That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.